0: Chapter 17 and 18 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 17. In the course of time, this sorrow was removed. At the beginning of the fifth year of her married life, Christina was safely delivered of a boy. This was on the 6th of September, 1835. Word was immediately sent to old Mr. Pontifex, who received the news with real pleasure. His son John's wife had borne daughters only, and he was seriously uneasy, lest there should be a failure in the male line of his descendants. The good news, therefore, was doubly welcome, and caused as much delight at Elmhurst as dismay in Woburn Square, where the John Pontifexes were then living. Here, indeed, this freak of fortune was felt to be all the more cruel on account of the impossibility of resenting it openly. But the delighted grandfather cared nothing for what the John Pontifexes might feel or not feel. He had wanted a grandson and he had got a grandson, and this should be enough for everybody. And now that Mrs. Theobald had taken to good ways, she might bring him more grandsons, which would be desirable, for he should not feel safe with fewer than three. He rang the bell for the butler. "'Gelstrap,' he said solemnly, "'I want to go down into the cellar.' Then Gelstrap preceded him with a candle. And he went into the inner vault where he kept his choicest wines. He passed many bins. There was 1803 port, 1792 imperial tokay, 1800 claret, 1812 sherry. These and many others were passed, but it was not for them that the head of the Pontifex family had gone down into his inner cellar. A bin which had appeared empty until the full light of the candle had been brought to bear upon it, was now found to contain a single pint bottle. This was the object of Mr. Pontifex's search. Gelstrap had often pondered over this bottle. It had been placed there by Mr. Pontifex himself about a dozen years previously, on his return from a visit to his friend, the celebrated traveller, Dr. Jones but there was no tablet above the bin which might give a clue to the nature of its contents. On more than one occasion when his master had gone out and left his keys accidentally behind him, as he sometimes did, Gelstrap had submitted the bottle to all the tests he could venture upon, but it was so carefully sealed that Wisdom remained quite shut out from that entrance at which he would have welcomed her most gladly and indeed from all other entrances, for he could make out nothing at all. And now the mystery was to be solved. But alas, it seems as though the last chance of securing even a sip of the contents was to be removed for ever, for Mr. Pontifex took the bottle in his own hands and held it up to the light after carefully examining the seal. He smiled and left the bin with the bottle in his hands then came a catastrophe he stumbled over an empty hamper there was the sound of a fall a smash of broken glass and in an instant the cellar floor was covered with the liquid that had been preserved so carefully for so many years with his usual presence of mind mr pontifex gasped out a month's warning to Gelstrap. then he got up and stamped as theobald had done when christina had wanted not to order his dinner it's water from the jordan he exclaimed furiously which i have been saving for the baptism of my eldest grandson damn you Gelstrap, how dare you be so infernally careless as to leave that hamper littering about the cellar i wonder the water of the sacred stream did not stand upright as a heap upon the cellar floor and rebuke him Gelstrap told the other servants afterward that his master's language had made his backbone curdle. The moment, however, that he heard the word water, he saw his way again and flew to the pantry. Before his master had well noted his absence, he returned with a little sponge and a basin, and had begun sopping up the waters of the Jordan as though they had been a common slop. I'll filter it, sir, said Gelstrap meekly it'll come quite clean mr pontifex saw hope in this suggestion which was shortly carried out by the help of a piece of blotting paper and a funnel under his own eyes eventually it was found that half a pint was saved and this was held to be sufficient then he made preparations for a visit to battersby he ordered goodly hampers of the choicest eatables he selected a goodly hamper of choice drinkables I say choice, and not choicest, for although in his first exaltation he had selected some of his very best wine, yet on reflection he had felt that there was moderation in all things, and as he was parting with his best water from the Jordan, he would only send some of his second best wine. Before he went to Battersby he stayed a day or two in London, which he now seldom did, being over seventy years old, and having practically retired from business. The John Pontifexes, who kept a sharp eye on him, discovered to their dismay that he had had an interview with his solicitors. CHAPTER eighteen. For the first time in his life, Theobald felt that he had done something right, and could look forward to meeting his father without alarm, The old gentleman, indeed, had written him a most cordial letter, announcing his intention of standing godfather to the boy. Nay, I may as well give it in full, as it shows the writer, at his best. It runs. Dear Theobald, Your letter gave me very sincere pleasure, the more so because I had made up my mind for the worst. Pray accept my most hearty congratulations for my daughter-in-law, and for yourself. I have long preserved a vial of water from the Jordan, for the christening of my first grandson, should it please God to grant me one. It was given me by my old friend Dr. Jones. You will agree with me that, though the efficacy of the sacrament does not depend upon the source of the baptismal waters, yet, Seratus. paribus, There is a sentiment attaching to the waters of the Jordan which should not be despised. Small matters like this sometimes influence a child's whole future career. I shall bring my own cook and have told him to get everything ready for the christening dinner. Ask as many of your best neighbors as your table will hold. By the way, I have told Le Sur not to get a lobster. You had better drive over yourself and get one from Saltness.' for Battersby was only fourteen or fifteen miles from the sea-coast. They are better there, at least I think so, than anywhere else in England. I have put your boy down for something in the event of his attaining the age of twenty-one years. If your brother John continues to have nothing but girls, I may do more later on, but I have many claims upon me, and am not as well off as you may imagine. Your affectionate father, G. Pontifex few days afterwards, the writer of the above letter made his appearance in a fly, which had brought him from Gildenham to Battersby, a distance of fourteen miles. There was Lesur, the cook, on the box with the driver, and as many hampers as the fly could carry were disposed upon the roof and elsewhere. Next day the John Pontifexes had to come, and Eliza and Maria, as well as Elethea who, by her own special request, was godmother to the boy, for Mr. Pontifex had decided that they were to form a happy family party. So come, they all must, and be happy, they all must, or it would be the worse for them. Next day the author of all this hubbub was actually christened. Theobald had proposed to call him George, after old Mr. Pontifex, but strange to say Mr. Pontifex overruled him in favor of the name Ernest. The word Ernest was just beginning to come into fashion, and he thought the possession of such a name might, like his having been baptized in water from the Jordan, have a permanent effect upon the boy's character, and influence him for good during the more critical periods of his life. I was asked to be his second godfather, and was rejoiced to have an opportunity of meeting Alethea, whom I had not seen for some few years, but with whom I had been in constant correspondence. She and I had always been friends, from the time we had played together as children onwards. When the death of her grandfather and grandmother severed her connection with Pallaham, my intimacy with the Pontifexes was kept up by my having been at school and college with Theobald and each time i saw her i admired her more and more as the best kindest wittiest most lovable and to my mind handsomest woman whom i had ever seen none of the pontifexes were deficient in good looks they were a well-grown shapely family enough but alethea was the flower of the flock even as regards good looks while in respect of all other qualities that make a woman lovable It seems as though the stock that had been intended for the three daughters, and would have been about sufficient for them, had all been allotted to herself, her sisters getting none, and she all. It is impossible for me to explain how it was that she and I never married. We two knew exceedingly well, and that must suffice for the reader. There was the most perfect sympathy and understanding between us we knew that neither of us would marry anyone else. I had asked her to marry me a dozen times over. Having said this much, I will say no more upon a point which is in no way necessary for the development of my story. For the last few years there had been difficulties in the way of our meeting, and I had not seen her, though, as I have said, keeping up a close correspondence with her. Naturally, I was overjoyed to meet her again. She was now just thirty years old but I thought she looked handsomer than ever. Her father, of course, was the lion of the party, but seeing that we were all meek and quite willing to be eaten, he roared to us rather than at us. It was a fine sight to see him tucking his napkin under his rosy old gills and letting it fall over his capacious waistcoat while the highlight from the chandelier danced about the bump of benevolence on his bald old head like a star of bethlehem the soup was real turtle the old gentleman was evidently well pleased and he was beginning to come out gilstrap stood behind his master's chair i sat next mrs theobald on her left hand and was thus just opposite her father-in-law whom i had every opportunity of observing during the first ten minutes or so which were taken up with the soup and the bringing in of the fish. I should probably have thought, if I had not long since made up my mind about him, what a fine old man he was, and how proud his children should be of him. But suddenly, as he was helping himself to lobster sauce, he flushed crimson, A look of extreme vexation suffused his face, and he darted two furtive but fiery glances to the two ends of the table, one for Theobald and one for Christina. They, poor simple souls, of course, saw that something was exceedingly wrong, and so did I, but I couldn't guess what it was till I heard the old man hiss in Christina's ear. It was not made with a hen-lobster. What's the use, he continued, of my calling the boy Ernest and getting him christened in water from the Jordan if his own father does not know a cock from a hen lobster? This cut me too, for I felt till that moment I had not so much as known that there were cocks and hens among lobsters, but had vaguely thought that in the matter of matrimony they were even as the angels in heaven, and grew up almost spontaneously from rocks and seaweed. Before the next course was over, Mr. Pontifex had recovered his temper, and from that time to the end of the evening he was at his best. He told us all about the water from the Jordan, how it had been brought by Dr. Jones along with some stone jars of water from the Rhine, the Rhône, the Elbe, and the Danube, and what trouble he had with them at the customs houses, and how the intention had been to make punch with waters from all the greatest rivers in Europe and how he, Mr. Pontifex, had saved the Jordan water from going into the bowl, etc., etc. No, 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 he continued. It wouldn't have done at all, you know. Very profane idea. So we each took a pint bottle of it home with us, and the punch was much better without it. I had a narrow escape with mine, though, the other day. I fell over a hamper in the cellar when I was getting it up to bring to Battersby and if I had not taken the greatest care, the bottle would certainly have been broken. But I saved it, and Gelstrap was standing behind his chair all the time. Nothing more happened to ruffle Mr. Pontifex, so we had a delightful evening, which has often recurred to me while watching the after-career of my godson. I called a day or two afterwards and found Mr. Pontifex still at Battersby, laid up with one of those attacks of liver and depression to which he was becoming more and more subject. I stayed to luncheon. The old gentleman was cross and very difficult. He could eat nothing, had no appetite at all. Christina tried to coax him with a little bit of the fleshy part of a mutton chop. How in the name of reason can I be asked to eat a mutton chop? he exclaimed angrily, "'You forget, my dear Christina, that you have to deal with a stomach that is totally disorganized.' And he pushed the plate from him, pouting and frowning like a naughty old child. Writing as I do by the light of a later knowledge, I suppose I should have seen nothing in this but the world's growing pains, the disturbance inseparable from transition in human things.' I suppose, in reality, not a leaf goes yellow in autumn without ceasing to care about its sap and making the parent tree very uncomfortable by long growling and grumbling. But surely nature might find some less irritating way of carrying on business if she would give her mind to it. Why should the generations overlap one another at all? Why cannot we be buried as eggs in neat little cells with ten or twenty thousand pounds each, wrapped round us in Bank of England notes, and wake up, as this Svexwas does, to find its papa and mamma have not only left ample provision at its elbow, but have been eaten by sparrows some weeks before it began to live consciously on its own account? About a year and a half afterwards, the tables were turned on Battersby. For Mrs. John Pontifex was safely delivered of a boy. A year or so later still, George Pontifex was himself struck down suddenly by a fit of paralysis, much as his mother had been, but he did not see the years of his mother. When his will was opened, it was found that an original bequest of twenty thousand pounds to Theobald himself, over and above the sum that had been settled upon him and Christina at the time of his marriage, had been cut down to 17,500 pounds, when Mr. Pontifex left something to Ernest. The something proved to be 2,500 pounds, which was to accumulate in the hands of trustees. The rest of the property went to John Pontifex, except that each of the daughters was left with about 15,000 pounds over and above, 5,000 pounds apiece, which they had inherited from their mother. Theobald's father, then, had told him the truth, but not the whole truth. Nevertheless, what right had Theobald to complain? Certainly it was rather hard to make him think that he and his were to be gainers, and get the honor and glory of the bequest, when all the time the money was virtually being taken out of Theobald's own pocket. On the other hand, the father doubtless argued that he had never told Theobald he was to have anything at all he had a full right to do what he liked with his own money. If Theobald chose to indulge in unwarrantable expectations, that was no affair of his. As it was, he was providing for him liberally, and if he did take twenty-five hundred pounds of Theobald's share, he was still leaving it to Theobald's son, which, of course, was much the same thing in the end. No one can deny that the testator, has strict right upon his side. Nevertheless, the reader will agree with me that Theobald and Christina might not have considered the christening dinner so great a success if all the facts had been before them. Mr. Pontifax had during his own lifetime set up a monument in Elmhurst Church to the memory of his wife, a slab with urns and cherubs like illegitimate children of King George the Fourth, and all the rest of it and had left space for his own epitaph underneath that of his wife. I do not know whether it was written by one of his children, or whether they got some friend to write it for them. I do not believe that any satire was intended. I believe that it was the intention to convey that nothing short of the day of judgment could give anyone an idea of how good a man Mr. Pontifex had been. But at first— I found it hard to think that it was free from guile. The epitaph begins by giving dates of birth and death, then sets out that the deceased was for many years head of the firm of Fairley and Pontifex, and also resident in the parish of Elmhurst. There is not a syllable of either praise or dispraise. The last lines run as follows. He now lies awaiting a joyful resurrection at the last day. What manner of man he was, that day will discover. End of chapter eighteen. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman.